Welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica. People often ask me, how do I keep up with the latest in big data, data science, and AI? Well, it turns out we have two event series that you can uh, take advantage of. The first one is called Strata Data Conference. That's at strataconf.com. And the second one is called the O'Reilly Artificial Intelligence Conference, which is at o'reillyaicon.com. On today's episode, my guest is Ressa Sade, an adjunct professor at Stanford, co-organizer of a conference called Scaled ML, and co-founder of Matroid, a startup focused on commercial applications of deep learning in computer vision. So full disclosure, I am an advisor to Matroid. However, on today's episode, we are not going to talk about Matroid. We will talk about uh, mostly about scaling machine learning. And uh, RESA is a great resource for that because uh, prior to working on TensorFlow and uh, scaling TensorFlow for computer vision applications, he was actually a core member of the Apache Spark community, uh, particularly MLlib. So he has a lot of good insights for us, both from the Apache Spark perspective and now in the deep learning world. I hope you enjoyed the episode. All right. I'm here today with Ressa Sade, CEO of Matroid, uh, an interesting uh, startup doing uh, things in the area of computer vision and AI. He's also an adjunct professor at Stanford University. And full disclosure, I am an advisor to Matroid. Welcome to the day show, Ressa. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. So we're recording this a week before uh, this conference that you started last year called scaledml.org. And I was unable to make it last year because I was in Beijing for the Strata Data Conference. But uh, the lineup this year looks great. And so as we look forward to the conference next week, I was going to just ask you a few questions about scaling machine learning in general. And then uh, we can do a, a deep, deeper dive into Matroid. How does that sound? Sounds great. Yeah, well, we're looking forward to having your panel at Scaled ML in a week. And uh, some of these questions I, uh, could hopefully be uh, discussed in public there as well. So uh, first off, um, machine learning, and particularly deep learning, I tell people we're now in an era of big data plus big models plus big compute. So with that in mind, how do you rank in terms of importance the various aspects of machine learning? So what is most important for improving machine learning? Is it big data? Is it big models? Or is it having a lot of models to choose from? So I would say that those are the three ways to scale machine learning. So the what you'd mentioned, having many, many data points, having big models and having many models. Each of those is a way to scale machine learning in, in a particular dimensions. And so I would say those are the three dimensions of scaling machine learning. The question of whether improving machine learning is best done by scaling machine learning, that is a question that is task dependent. For many tasks, it's not the case. And for many tasks, it is the case. For, uh, for tasks where scaling machine learning is, is valuable, uh, we better have the tools to do it. We better know how to do it. And we better have thought through how to do it with many machines, many cores, and many uh, floating point units. There are problems where, it, where we probably don't have the right models there. And so scaling machine learning might necessarily might not necessarily be the best thing. Um, so for a while, we thought that uh, we could just 
do a lot of speech recognition with more traditional machine learning models. And then it turns out that neural networks are pretty, particularly good at that. Um, for things like recommender systems, we're still using uh, more traditional methods, factorization methods, and, and even more basic linear models. So it's a matter of scale. I don't want to, I don't want to basically come out the gate saying scaling is the only way to improve machine learning. It's not, but it's a particularly useful way to improve machine learning. It makes it very, uh, it's a sort of a hammer to improve any machine learning model, first off. And second of all, it's sometimes it's the, it's, it's what gets us the cutting edge. Once you've done everything you can with the, with a model architecture, with the choosing a particular model, then you can go to town on these three dimensions of scaling machine learning to eke out extra performance for your model to win competitions, to have state-of-the-art performance, to have acceptable performance in some cases so that you can uh, go to town with your application. So you, you take an area like computer vision uh, where you had ImageNet, this, uh, da- this uh, open data set that people use. So first of all, uh, you had that data set existed, so you had big data. And then uh, deep learning came along and uh, basically uh, beat out all of the other approaches. That seems to me an example where you had big data, but then the big model uh, produced a significant improvement. That's, uh, that's true. That's true. So uh, the big model there and the big amount of data produced a, a significant improvement. But keep in mind, so ImageNet and uh, the models that were used to win ImageNet are separate things. And actually, the models that were used to win ImageNet, the convolutional neural network, was around much, much before ImageNet came around. So what, what we saw actually on the, in the ImageNet competition was that uh, there was a significant improvement when we took a CNN and ran it on ImageNet versus other methods and ran it on ImageNet. So the win there was actually the architecture. And what allowed us to really say, look, this is a robust finding that is not due to noise. It is not due to some weird um, quirk in the data was that the data was so large. The data was terabytes. And so if you could take terabytes of data and explain it with a model, chances are people take you much more seriously. And it, it, because it was in a competition format where there was a third party, uh, Stanford in this case, verifying results, it really was a very dependable result. So it's not, it's not immediately clear that the only and the most important factor in the improvements that we saw in ImageNet was the scaling. It, it's definitely clear that the scaling was crucial for the result to be as significant as it, ha- as it has been. And the fact that we had such a large data set means that data set is actually used in real life in a lot of places to train models that are used in real life in a lot of places now. Because the ImageNet model, the, sorry, the ImageNet data set had so many data points, it's a pretty applicable model. When, when, when you build models off of it, those models are pretty applicable to the real world because there's just so much data in ImageNet. But it's still actually not enough. So what you see is uh, places like uh, Google are, are releasing even bigger uh, data sets than ImageNet that, that dwarf ImageNet uh, with the same goal of uh, having more generalizability. With, with regard to the bigger data set here, it's, it's particularly important because these image, these image and video models really need to see examples what, of what they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to be um, explaining and, and recognizing. And there are a lot of things in the world. And so you need a lot more data there. Um, so in some ways, it's a, it's a necessary quirk of this problem, too, that you must have a lot of data uh, because there are a lot of things in the world. They also seem to require a lot of 
uh, examples before they learn a pattern, right? So, so there's some speculation that there's some amount of memorization going on, right? And and in fact, people don't can't uh, don't quite understand how some of these models work and when exactly are they memorizing? When are they actually learning? That's right. So there's a lot of machine learning theory that we have from the days of logistic regression and support vector machines, tools like VC dimension and rata market complexity. Those tools basically tell us nothing about neural networks. Even though neural networks work, uh, if we try and apply those tools, what they would tell us is that you cannot trust the result of the neural network at all, even though we can. We, we, we do in mission-critical situations, and, and they work. And part of the reason is that uh, neural networks can memorize and generalize at the same time. And the theoretical models that we had from beforehand pretty much assume that if a model is supposed to do well, it has to pretty much only generalize. That's a very crude way of putting what the theory says, but it's, uh, the theory doesn't accommodate memorization very well. And I would say that actually memorization is a core part of what we do as humans when we're learning. It's, it's totally reasonable for us to have a little bit of rote learning and a little bit of generalization mixed in. And any machine learning model that pretends to be like a human learner, I think, has to have a bit of both. And so theoreticians are actually now totally uh, throwing out the old tools of VC dimension, the old tools of Rademacher complexity, even some uh, tools from uh, regularization, some theoretical tools that, that came about from being able to regularize a model. All of those are being uh, replaced. Uh, and, and currently, we don't have a winner. There is no theory, machine learning theory, that explains um, explains uh, neural networks very well. And the the thing with um, uh, the thing with many examples being required. So it's not always the case. You see, the the if if you if you have a pre-trained model that's already seen a few terabytes of data, to get that model to learn some new object often does not need terabytes of data. Actually, often it only needs a few examples uh, on the order of tens. And so there's all, we've already managed to get some level of transfer learning going. And the thing is, though, uh, I, would even, I would argue that even humans do this. So uh, humans basically gather data throughout their entire lives. And it's only by way of having had years and years and decades, uh, if you're, uh, if you're, if you're more than 10 years old, decades of, of data that you can start generalizing really quickly from a few examples. Um, and so I would, I would be careful in saying that these models necessarily need uh, terabytes of data. Sometimes they get away with much fewer if they've seen a lot of data beforehand and then they see a new task. So this is, uh, this is also something that, um, uh, that, that these research. It's, it's not clear whether what kinds of tasks we should do a priori so that then most tasks that human can, humans can do can be done with comparable number of examples that humans need. So uh, it's very easy to start recognizing a person's voice just by hearing a few sentences from them, but it's currently difficult for a computer to do that. And these are the things that we can work on uh, building pre-trained models that, that, that can then be tuned a little bit more to to, to finalize the generalization needed to attach to a particular instance. So actually a couple of points. One, the one thing that is heartening to me is that theoreticians are really engaging in the area of machine learning. So for example, there's a program this year at the Simons Institute of Computing in Berkeley 
on the theoretical foundations of machine learning. And uh, one, one of the people there, Sanjeev Arora from Princeton, has really been investigating deep learning. So that's, I think we're going to see some uh, results from the theory people soon. So Absolutely. Can, yeah. So yeah. The, theory, the theory group, the theory folks were for a while saying, well, look, these neural networks are memorizing. You shouldn't be using them. And now the narrative has changed. Now the narrative has changed. To, okay, we accept this. We're going to understand why. Right. And that's, exactly. that's wonderful. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then secondly, I think there's also uh, a movement among people to basically take deep learning and, uh, and uh, infuse it with different properties. So, for example, there's a group at MIT under Josh Tannenbaum where they're, where they're trying to come up with uh, approaches which are more similar to how humans think. So, for example, I guess one of the things, if you look at a human, there's some foundational startup knowledge, you know, like some basic knowledge of physics, right? So you you know that if you're driving down a street, you see you see someone, they're not just going to disappear. You know, so there's so there's so even a child can know that right away that oh this this is wrong. The person can't fly or a person can't just disappear out of a Well, scene. children get confused about some things like right object permanence psychologists know that if a kid doesn't see their mother in view, they think the mother is gone forever. These kinds of things are learned apparently at a very young age. Right. So uh, yeah, right. that that's uh, that's something that definitely is learned. Some basic rules of physics are learned from a very young age. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So now shifting a little bit. So I we talked about big data and big models, but also big compute hardware is important, right? So as you as you're starting to uh, do more and more things in production. How are you thinking about hardware? So in particular, what is the right hardware and software interface for machine learning? So CPUs basically have been the workhorse for computer science for the past few decades. And, and in the past decade, they stopped getting faster because of fundamental physical problems. And for the past decade, there's been a, there's been a tussle between all of the different hardware manufacturers to figure out what should be the right way to keep improving uh, uh, processing capability. And for, uh, for CPUs, it seems to have been, let's just add more CPUs. Let's add more fully capable cores, CPU cores that can do all the things that a simple CPU can, but just have many of them. So 16, 32, however many you like in a, in a, uh, all accessible to the same, um, RAM, piece of RAM. That's one way to go. That was one way to go about uh, improving CPUs since 2005 or so, when when the speeds sort of flattened out at 2.3 around 3 gigahertz. Um, and then ever since then, there's been a, a flurry of different uh, models to parallelize computations, and it looks as though uh, hardware that very natively supports linear algebra operations is actually the better way to go with regard to parallelizing operations. And, and and getting more bang for buck out of the out of the hardware. So the uh, the current situation is that maybe it's not the best thing to have multiple cores. Maybe it's the, the multiple cores that are fully capable. Maybe it's best to have many many cores that are capable of doing something very simple, like very basic addition, very basic um, floating point operations. Many of them though, thousands of them versus thirty of them which are fully capable. So let's have thousands of very very uh, simple cores. And just put them to town working on linear algebra operations. That approach of building hardware um, with many simple cores focused on uh, linear algebra operations is exactly what happens in a GPU. 
Um, and now that approach is being copied by other hardware manufacturers. Now it's, it's also being put, now we're seeing uh, these, these basic, um, uh, I guess, batch linear algebra uh, pieces of hardware being baked into FPGA, being created as FPGAs, being baked into, um, being baked into ASICs. And, and it's largely driven actually by, by neural networks because neural networks fundamentally need a lot of uh, new, uh, a lot of linear algebra operations. So I would say that the, going forward, the right hardware for machine learning will be hardware that deals with linear algebra operations, many linear algebra operations, and does them really, really well as a first-class citizen. That's, I think that's where uh, the future of, of uh, increased compute capacity is going. But then, but then you need the, uh, the libraries, right? So That's right. So like, there are several libraries that have been around for this, yeah. Yeah, MKL for the for Intel in CPUs, and then right, uh, right, and so, then CUDA. That's right. So there's CUDA that that um, well, let's go back in time a little bit. There's BLAS, the li basic linear algebra operations that, that have been around for decades. Uh, they're actually often implemented in Fortran, and when you run MATLAB, when you run Python, uh, you're actually running Fortran code that was written in the 70s uh, because linear algebra doesn't change much, and and these are really optimized routines. Um, but they're not enough. They're not enough. They only do basic linear algebra operations like matrix matrix multiplies, matrix vector multiplies, and vector vector uh, operations. Yeah, and then uh, you're already blast level four, even with matrix matrix, right? So uh, level three, blast level three okay. is matrix matrix. Blast level four is something that is effectively being created right now. So blast level four is something that uh, CUDA and KUBLAS actually deal with. So CUDA blast level four is not well defined, but it's something that uh, everyone is trying to essentially create. And uh, the the kinds of things that you might want to create is many small matrix matrix multiplies all happen at once. That's something that is not currently supported. What happens if it's a matrix matrix multiply, but one of the matrices is sparse, which also happens when you have these uh, neural networks that later down their computation pipeline, the matrices are actually very sparse. Sparse matrix multiplication algorithms are very different from dense matrix multiplication algorithms, even in hardware. So these are the, um, these are the uh, considerations that hardware manufacturers are taking into account now. To, and, and sometimes you even want a full pipeline. Like the whole, you might want a, a whole, uh, an entire convolutional layer being implemented in hardware. And that's a very reasonable thing to do because it seems like anything you want to do with images and video first has to go through a convolutional layer. And, and you know, we, we have optimized hardware for playing music and, and decoding MP3s. Why don't we have optimized hardware for sucking in images in video? We, we pretty much should. Um, so this is, the, this is the tussle between the hardware manufacturers, building out hardware for that that is best suited. And right now, NVIDIA is, is leading, but I do think the others, um, Intel and, and Qualcomm and, and, uh, uh, and, and, and the others that are, that are building these hardware will, will catch up and, and do, uh, do a good job of catering to linear algebra and therefore machine learning. Actually, I was just speaking with, uh, I just had an uh, episode actually with Anima Anand Kumar, who's uh, currently at Amazon, but going to Caltech next year. Um, and she was telling me about uh, some research they did that have been implemented in Kublas 8.0. So these are basically uh, uh, tensor operations. Right, right. Yeah, 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 so tensor operations are a fundamental need for, um, for deep learning. And um, basically, that goes into when I say linear algebra operations, I include tensor operations as a part of it. And uh, yeah, BLAS definitely does not support uh, easily support tensor operations right now, and it really should. 
So it, Blas sort of uh, ends at, at talking about matrices. And we really do need uh, more dimensions there for, um, for taking into account just, you know, there's, there's three channels to every image even. So I mean, image is not necessarily just a matrix. It's, a, it's three matrices. And so that's already something to, to optimize over. Um, and then it gets even more, uh, they, these, metrics, these tensors get even more fat as, as uh, we go down the, the layers of computation. Uh, and I don't really, uh, you know, and, and, it's, and it's important to, to realize that hardware manufacturers look much further down the line than the current needs of, say, a neural network. You know, we, we've been framing this discussion entirely as uh, what, do, what do we need to get a neural network going? But in reality, in, your, in, in 10 years from now, neural networks might be down the drain and something else might have replaced them. Um, but their hardware manufacturers have to build their hardware in a way that they will uh, they will persist. And so the the correct way to do that, I believe, is to to rely on more mathematical operations uh, than to to co- commit to neural network operations. And so tensors are a particular mathematical formulation that are that are that are very relevant across a wide variety of fields outside of neural networks. So ha- having tensor operations and more general linear algebra operations, I think, is the way to go. And actually, you know. Uh... Hopping onto that point, uh, even before uh, the deep learning renaissance, uh, sparse matrix computations were important because of these uh, wide machine learning models, right? So with with lots of uh, dimensions. Uh, how long ago are we talking? Uh, I would say even uh, uh, the aughts, right? So two <laughs> thousands. Okay. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. So in the two thousands, we did have a lot of sparse machine learning happening with specialized Specialized sparse matrix multiplication, specialized sparse um, matrix factorization, and so on. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you also spent some time uh, uh, working on machine learning uh, within Spark. So you were, I, I guess, you're also uh, just like me, an advisor to Databricks. But so, so what do you think about? Uh, do you think that we will see flexible hardware acceleration from the JVM, or and is that important? This has been a promise that has been, ha- so flexible hardware acceleration from the JVM has been a promise that has been around for as long as the JVM has. So first of all, uh, Reza, define it and why is it important? Ah, right. So the JVM is, uh, first of all, the, the first nicety about Java is that it, that it gets compiled down to this intermediary language called Java bytecode. And that intermediary language, the Java bytecode, gets run on a Java runtime. And what happens is the Java runtime only needs to be compiled for a specific architecture. And then the, the bytecode that the Java developer writes gets, uh, is, is portable between, is portable between different machines that have a Java runtime. So if I write a, uh, a Java application in, on my Mac, um, then that, that application can run in all kinds of places. Uh, including uh, Windows and and weird variants of of phones and all kinds of in all kinds of other places and uh, that has been a blessing and a curse. The blessing is that your code is portable. The curse is that your code cannot touch hardware particularly closely because if it does, then that means you would be going around the the, the capabilities of the byte code that you have to commit to and and that is a uh, that is a curse because when you're writing machine learning operations that want to use the very uh, fine, t- the very advanced features of your hardware, like let's say you have hardware that does 20 batch matrix multiplies all at once, and you want that capability because it's going to speed up your code dramatically, JVM won't let you do that because while well, you're in Java world, you're not supposed to know which platform you're running on, and so all of that is hidden from you deliberately. 
Um, and ever since uh, this is Java has been around, this has been the case. But at the same time, there are folks who say, well, no, look, you can get around it by doing this, by having some kind of na native interface, by doing all these hacks. And it is, um, it's always possible, but it's always a hassle. And it's gotten to a point where pretty much every time a library comes out for hardware acceleration, some new hardware comes out for hardware acceleration, it takes a couple of years even to be able to start using that hardware from the JVM. And by the time you start getting to, by the time you start writing code for, for the JVM, for that piece of hardware, some new piece of hardware has come out. So as a Java developer, even though there is this promise that maybe with native interfaces, eventually you'll be able to use the specialized hardware, the reality is you can never be at the cutting edge. And so that's a problem, especially when you're building tools that are supposed to be at the cutting edge. So Spark had this problem in that we, we couldn't easily get access to a GPU running on a node in a Yarn cluster. Um, it's all a JVM stack, and you want to be able to talk to the GPU to say, hey, look, here's a particularly big vector, it's a bit sparse, and here's a particularly big matrix, it's a bit sparse, use your fancy specialized sparse sparse matrix multiply. You couldn't do that because, well, you don't know which version of the, which, which, we don't know which, where you're running. You don't know whether the native libraries that are needed are installed. And that's, uh, that's not a nice user experience. It's neither a nice user experience nor a nice developer experience. So with the, with, with this, the JVM was invented with the idea that hardware was going to get abstracted away more and more and more. But because we had this sudden stop in the speed of uh, CPUs and that, that because the CPU stopped getting faster and we, start, we had to start rewriting our algorithms to make them more parallel, we suddenly had to start talking to the hardware more directly again. And so this fundamental assumption that the JVM was making, that hardware becomes less and less relevant, was broken. Hardware became more and more relevant because we had to redo the hardware software interface. And we're still redoing the hardware software interface. It's not clear which, which hardware software interface is the correct one to be able to continue Moore's law um, in being able to do many operations per second. It's no longer that CPUs are fast. Now we have to rewrite our algorithms to be parallel. To write our algorithms to be parallel, we have to rewrite them in terms of the hardware description. Uh, whatever the hardware allows for. And that means we have to talk directly to the hardware. The JVM can't be getting in the way. So I'm actually of the, of the um, opinion that it's time for us to either retire the JVM or, or do something very different with it. It's, it's, um, it's not the best place to be, especially when you have compute-intensive machine learning tasks. You know, it's funny because uh, our mutual friend, Ion Stoika, who's the chairman of Databricks, he was just telling me that in their new lab, Rice Lab, uh, it's definitely a no JVM. I think they made the right decision there. I absolutely think they made the right decision. And the funny thing, so one of the big differences between the customized, um, the customized cloud infrastructure inside Google and the rest of the world, which uses the open source stack made up of the Hadoop infrastructure and the Spark infrastructure and the Hadoop ecosystem and the Spark ecosystem, the big difference is the JVM. And uh, Google is able to eke out more performance out of their machines because they do everything in C++ and compile down. They have the luxury of knowing what hardware they're running on because they buy the hardware as well as run the software, as well as build the software. Uh, but, uh, but when you're in the open source world, you want to be a little bit more portable. Uh, but because of, because of they were, they've been able to get down to the hardware in, immediately, they've been able to do a lot more um, and get a lot more out of their hardware. And actually, they're building this compiler called XLA for TensorFlow now, which is supposed to, in some ways, take up uh, exactly the issue that we mentioned is 
being able to run C++ code specialized towards these different hardware manufacturers that, that, that are coming out with better linear algebra interfaces. The XLA compiler is exactly geared towards that. So uh, there, it's, it's an issue. It's a, uh, we th- I think that's actually the right way forward. I don't think a common runtime can, can solve the pro- issue until the hardware interface is resolved and you know, the hardware interface becomes stable. Uh, and that's not going to happen for another decade or so. We're not going to see a clear winner in the hardware uh, war until another decade. So building software that, that caters to the different hardware right now is the right thing to do. And the way to do that was with a compiler that can compile to the different ways. And XLA, I think, is, is that. And I think the RISE Lab will build tools that are similar in that regard. They will be able to handle different kinds of hardware by compiling down to different architectures. Cool. So machine learning frameworks. So what are some of the workloads that that you think have benefited from uh, some of these new and better machine learning frameworks? Well, uh, the no-brainer is is neural networks, right? It's almost the case that neural networks drive a lot of the hardware designs. By frameworks, do you mean hardware frameworks or do you mean software frameworks? I actually should should, uh, clarify that question. Uh, Hardware frameworks. Okay. So yeah, for sure, neural networks have been benefiting greatly from new hardware frameworks. Um, and so that's a no-brainer because a lot of these um, a lot of these hardware manufacturers specifically do that. Long before neural networks were uh, the driving factor behind uh, behind these hardware designs, actually, it was some s- simpler applications like solving linear systems for the sake of finding oil. When you want to find oil, you have to you have to solve some very large linear systems, and these are very big, expensive problems. Um, and actually, NVIDIA would come to, you know, our, they would come to Stanford and would say, hey, look, you need to solve linear systems. Our, our hardware is particularly good at linear systems. Why don't you try and use our linear system solver uh, on a GPU for your problem? And we would, and it would work. Um, it's just that it, it wasn't such a, sexy, uh, such a sexy application until deep learning came along. So another area that's actually been very much benefiting from this is not machine learning, but solving linear systems. And so if you can solve linear systems quickly, you can help vast amounts of physics. You can, you can help um, whenever, there's a, whenever there's a partial differential equation that has been discretized, which happens in physics all the time. Like if you're trying to simulate airflow around the, uh, the wing of an airplane, if you're trying to figure out how, uh, how the flow in the oceans go, these are all best modeled with partial differential equations. And partial differential equations are modeled and solved using linear systems. And these linear systems are accelerated when you have nice hardware that specifically caters to a linear system. So long before deep learning and machine learning were uh, so benefited, I guess, so saw such a benefit from these these uh, GPUs and, and linear algebra operations, we were seeing them in other areas. They were just less visible areas, I guess. So definitely uh, a wide variety of, of, of fields will be are benefiting from this. Do you want me to specifically point out the machine learning tasks that would have been uh, that have been benefiting from this, or, or uh... yeah, just just rattle them off. I think. Uh... <laughs> well, so image recognition for sure with ImageNet, speech recognition with the switchboard, and machine translation with uh, neural machine translation. These are all using specialized machine learning hardware and specialized deep learning frameworks, and they are state of the art uh, as a result. So what about uh, so there was a time when people got excited about graphs. Do you remember? I still get excited about graphs, man. Yeah. I mean, social networks and billions of nodes, billions, trillions of edges, that kind of thing, right? So. Yeah, those are less exciting now, I guess. But, but they're, they're, they were exciting and they are still very important. Yeah. 
yeah. And there's still uh, there. So uh, I guess social networks and social network computations, like PageRank, for example, have are still out of the range of a single machine doing them all. And so the 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 uh, those are still cases where the 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 data is on the order of tens, if not hundreds, of terabytes. And so you can't deal with them in a single machine. And so automatically you start using more than one machine there. And then the exciting things to talk about is how you manage to get those machines to talk to each other in a communication efficient way. Um, and, and less about how you manage to eke out every last uh, floating point right, right, of performance right. out of the single machine. So that, the research there in communication efficient algorithm is still happening and it's still very much alive. Uh, maybe it's not getting as much, uh, as much love as deep learning because of the hype of deep learning, but it's still there. By the way, uh, speaking of floating point, one of the things that I, I know that people are looking at is, uh, you know, what if we sacrifice some precision? Can we get more performance? Is that correct? Yeah, that happens all the time. Yeah, absolutely. So the neural networks that, uh, that get trained, they, they're often trained with uh, the very bare minimum of precision, uh, like eight, 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 an 8-bit eight uh, float, floating point number as opposed to 1632 or, or, or 64, because they don't need particularly high precision. There's even some insane work that says, well, look, we can we only need uh, two bits. <laughs> so so they just have four different numbers for a sing with a sing represented. And just with four different numbers, they're saying, well, look, we can we can eke out most of the performance. And and it's I believe them. I believe them. Uh, it's just uh, when you realize that you, you you start thinking, well, what can you do with it? The, the things you can do with it is one power efficiency. Uh, you don't have to do as you don't have to use as much power, and, and this matters when you're when you're talking about a, when you're talking to a hardware manufacturer. These hardware manufacturers care greatly about how much power is being used because that's exactly the determining factor of whether it makes it into your phone or not. And then efficiency, of course, yeah. If you, if you can, if you can, if you have to deal with only two bits um, or or eight bits, the hardware uh, just is there's less less of it, less of a footprint on the hardware. You can build more of it. You can add more capability to your chips if if it, if the capability you're adding is is, is a smaller floating point, is, is catering to a smaller floating point uh, accuracy. And actually, NVIDIA and, and another hardware manufacturers, when they release their, um, their, their newest um, graphics cards or their newest CPUs, they, they have numbers for floating point 8, floating point 16. They say, look, we can do this many operations if you're willing to do um, lower accuracy uh, precision, lower precision um, uh, uh, computations. And so definitely, that's, that's, a, that's a trend now as well. By the way, uh... Uh, machine learning is a big field, and deep learning is just one approach, one school. That's right. That's right. Um, so, you personally, which other types of approaches do you use most frequently that are not deep learning and at, at very large scale, for example? Logistic regression is tremendously powerful. Yeah. I think it doesn't get anywhere near as much love as it should. And frankly, it, it, it's one of the workhorses that uh, that that is that is still in use in production in many, many places. So that the Twitter who to follow algorithms that you see up online um, on the Twitter website are, are, are driven in, in large part by, by logistic regression. And they, they work well, even though not necessarily all of the Twitter site works well, but definitely the, the, the who to follow suggestions work well. And, and, the, and those, are, those are powered by yeah, yeah. regression. And, and Speaking of which, actually, so that's, an that's a case where, for example, give me a big data set, g good, big, labeled data set, I can apply logistic regression, and you can apply some fancy algorithm on a smaller set of labeled data, I probably will uh, kick your butt. 
depends on yeah depends on the task if it's a task that that um if it's a task like like speech recognition logic uh, regression is not so yeah, good yeah, for yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. That's, if yeah. it's a task that that needs human perception funnily enough those are the ones that logic regression isn't so good at like uh, well, I mean, so what about uh, some other routine tests, like let's say text classification, right? So. Yeah, actually, text classification still the linear classifiers do a very good job there. Yeah. So, so beyond logistic regression, anything else jumps out? Do you still do support vector machines? Decision trees. Well, <laughs> decision. yeah, some people do. I'm not a. I, I haven't been using support vector machines as often as as I as I should be, but I, I'm sure a lot of people are still using them, and they're still phenomenally helpful. Uh, personally, I've been using decision trees uh, outside of uh, outside of logistic regression and neural networks. Uh, and decision trees are are one of the few models that actually don't really benefit from all of this all of this uh, linear algebra hullabaloo that's been going on with the hardware manufacturers. There, the, uh, the 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 algorithms that we use for training a decision tree, the ID three algorithm, for example, doesn't necessarily and immediately have a huge benefit from uh, from from a GPU. And so, or, or uh, for, from, from optimized linear algebra operations, you can, you can accelerate them with, with linear algebra operations, but the speed ups that you get aren't as drastic as the ones that we see when we do a neural network, uh, for example, because there's less linear algebra operations involved. Like there aren't any matrix matrix multiplies in a decision tree training procedure. So the, yeah, that's, that's something that actually often they give. Random forests, which which are basically an evolution of, of decision trees, are very very uh, competitive in many ca- many tasks, and they're much less computationally intensive. They don't need fancy hardware. Um, I think they don't get enough love, uh, and they're they're very nonlinear too. They're, they they can capture nonlinearity as uh, almost as well as neural networks can. It's a uh, it's a matter of them not being so good for the for the very important tasks of say image recognition yeah that you associate with perception and yeah. ai and ai right so yeah i don't know what the word ai means but yeah, i yeah, but yeah. i but i can at least understand what perception means perception is sort of trying to get the most basic tasks from our senses done right what do our senses do one one is vision we actually have to understand what we're looking at the other is speech which we, we, we do with our ears for those two tasks i think that Decision trees don't do so well, but neural networks do very well, and um, that's something that that I think once we understand more and more how neural networks work, we'll be able to actually transfer those understandings to other models that might be cheaper to compute and cheaper to train. We'll see how that how that pans out, but I think we need to understand a little bit more of the theory of neural networks before we get there. Uh, so you spent, as I mentioned earlier, you spent time uh, helping the Spark community with machine learning. And uh, now you're much more focused on deep learning. So in your mind, is fault tolerance a must-have feature for these uh, machine learning frameworks? I think for a long time we thought that it was, but it's, it is not necessarily Oh, anymore. no, you went, over to the, you went over to the dark side of uh, <laughs> checkpoint, checkpointing and restarting everything. <laughs> so... Well, it's, I don't know why that's the dark side. It's it's uh, <laughs> it's, it's it's just it's pragmatic. It's pragmatic. So, no, I mean, so so uh, hear me out here, right? So you're train. Sure. Let's say you're training a big speech model, and the training time is three weeks, four months. You're doing MPI, so you're checkpointing. So yeah, I mean, I think if you had a much more elegant solution, uh, particularly, I guess the the problem there is really the training time is too long. So you sh- you should fix that first, right? Well, 
Right. Uh, that's that's part of it. The other part is that we can use. Okay, let me let me give a little background here. Um, the the reason we care so greatly about fault tolerance in Spark is because Spark could be used for some very mission critical database applications. Like, let's say um, you had a history of transactions um, on your on your e-commerce website, and you wanted to get do something very simple like figure out how much money a person spent or what your revenue was, et cetera. These are, these are numbers that cannot have any error in them. They, can't, they must be perfect because you're running an entire business on them. They, you can't have any errors there. And so fault tolerance is absolutely necessary because if a machine goes down there, you have to deal with it. Now, that is, that is a, a world where um, that's, that's absolutely reasonable. Now, come at, into this world where you're training a machine learning model that, that it takes weeks to train or days to train. And this machine learning model, if part, each part of the parameters is sitting on a different machine, um, if that machine dies, you can actually just restart the machine with some random, uh, random initialization and have it rejoin the training procedure. And you know how, how well the training procedure is doing because you know what the training loss is and you know you have an idea for how far away you are from being, having a good model. Um, and so you can basically reinitialize that lost work with some random work and then continue and, 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 and compute for a little bit longer until you know that you have a good model in your hands. And all of the traditional uh, guarantees about, uh, about having a good model, you can, you can check them. You can make sure you have low training error. You can make sure you have a reasonable regularization error. All of that you can check. And, to, and, to and be, you and don't to need be, to recompute. And That's to be the key. And to be fair, what you're describing here, you can automate. That's right. It's you not like it's not well. like it's not like you're manually. That's uh, right. That's yeah. right. So as far as machines, if 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 you've been training for five days and one of your machines goes down, it doesn't make sense for you to restart training from five days ago. And that's what you're forced to do, actually. In, in many of these machine learning algorithms, you are forced to restart the training for all machines from five days ago. And it makes no sense, right? It just doesn't. You don't need to do that. Um, you would only need to do it if you wanted exactly to reconstruct all the competitions that were lost, but you don't need it in a machine learning model that can check its own performance. And so, and this is the case for many, if not most, actually it is the case for most machine learning models. So there, it would be awfully nice to be able to turn off fault tolerance. So this is an machine learning, uh, our scenario, some machine learning scenarios, many of them, it makes sense to turn off fault tolerance. And, and it would be, uh, and you can do that. I'm not even saying that checkpointing is the right way to go, but at the very least, you shouldn't start from the from scratch. So if you checkpoint once once every two hours, and the checkpoint takes you ten seconds or or a minute to do, uh, that's well worth not having to recompute for five days. Um, and and it's the same guarantees. So why not? Um, as more and more of uh, uh, data gets generated by these devices at the edge, so self-driving cars devices and all these things right so mobile phones yeah 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 yeah. it's clear that uh, there will be too much data to upload to the uh cloud right to the to something some right. some central system so you probably will still do that but you need to be much more careful about what you transport so how would you scale machine learning at the edge so we had three different ways of scaling machine learning. We had uh, large amounts of data, scaling the data, scaling the number, scaling the models, having very big models, and having many models. So scaling the number of models. 
The first two, I think, are not going to work when you're at the edge. So having large amounts of data and training on large amounts of data at the edge won't work because these things often don't have much space. They don't have terabytes of space, whether they're a self-driving car or a little phone or a camera. They don't have, uh, well, maybe the car has terabytes of space, but you still wouldn't want to compute terabytes and terabytes in a car. And, and, and that's, uh, that's an issue. So you can't really expect to be able to do very large training jobs in, in a, on the edge. You can't expect to have very big models in the edge either because these machines don't have a lot of memory that is, that is available. So if you, have a, if you have a phone, your phone doesn't have that much memory. It doesn't have, uh, it doesn't have a, close to a terabyte of memory. Um, and I'm talking about uh, RAM, I'm not talking about, uh, not talking about uh, uh, hard drive. Um, so both of those things uh, are, you have to, you can't, you can't train much on, a, on the edge. You can't, um, you can't uh, have many big models or you can't have big models on the edge. But the last dimension, which is having many different models, that's totally doable. You can, you can totally have many different models. Each little device have its own model at the edge. That's very doable. And in fact, those models can be creating uh, compressed versions of the data that the, that, the, that the device is consuming and send that into the cloud. And the model itself can come from the cloud. So what can happen is the training on big data and big models can happen in the cloud. And then the model can be compressed and different versions of the model can be sent out onto the edge. This is what's, I think, the, the future for edge computing as far as machine learning, scaling machine learning goes, having many different models. What happens right now is uh, a lot of manufacturers, they'll just send the same model to all of their edge devices. Um, but actually, all of, these model, all of these devices are probably going to be seeing different things. And so you might even want to be able to customize the model that's been sent to each device. Uh, sure. That's something that I think the folks that, uh, yeah, I think that's an area of research, actually, that, 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 is, that is currently very interesting. So are there uh, specific things that one should uh, do? So we, I think many of the things we talked about had to do with training. But what about inferences? Are there specific things that people are doing? To Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So inf- when I say we have, a, we have a model at the edge, that means we're using a model at the edge. That means we're performing inference at the edge. So uh, let's say you have a, you have a tiny little um, neural network to, to do speech recognition on your phone. There, you're doing inference on the phone. Um, and as, a, as an interesting aside here, you can, you can have a smaller model that runs on the edge that, does, that, that satisfies the user more immediately. So you can have a speech recognition model that immediately uh, transcribes what you're saying. And then, that, the, the, trans, the, then the, the audio file can also be sent to the cloud where a more powerful and accurate model can run at the same time and see what the translation is. And if there's a mismatch between the two translations, the correction can be sent to the device. And also, um, now we understand that this, the smaller model makes mistakes like this. And so later on, we can retrain a smaller model to not make mistakes like that as well. So there, there can be a feedback loop between a, a big model and a small model. The inf- inference is run on the small model as well as the big model. And um, the smaller models are actually not going to be doing, doing the learning themselves. The learning happens on the on the cloud, but the, the, the model gets shipped to the device every once in a while, every day, every week or so, the, the small model on the device can change. That's, that's what's happening, I think. All right, so let's uh, close by, ha- by talking a little bit about your company, uh, Matroid. Um, so for those of people who aren't familiar with Matroid, uh, they're tackling uh, or they're building products uh, around computer vision. So I guess the first question is why computer vision? Why not other 
other areas where deep learning has, already, has also shown promise? Well, so Metroid is a, we are the computer vision company. And the reason we're focused on computer vision is, is, is because the opportunity there has only opened up in the past few years. Uh, computer vision, I think, has been not so usable uh, in the past 10 years ago. It wasn't so, so usable. In the past four or five years, computer vision has come to a point where it is ready for industry. And we're seeing so many opportunities. Our customers are seeing so many opportunities. We're seeing so many opportunities that we effectively were pulled into doing it. It's not, it wasn't so much a choice. It is. So you didn't, so you, I assume you did some investigation and there's a reason why Matroid isn't the speech recognition company or uh, Matroid isn't right. the, Matroid right. isn't the natural language understanding company. That's right. The reasons for that is both of those things, speech recognition and natural language understanding and, and machine translation as well. Those are tasks that have been around for, for decades, maybe even half a, half a century, actually. So, so speech recognition has definitely been around for half a century. Machine translation has definitely been around for half a century. And these tasks have been getting better and better and better over time. And the opportunities associated with them, the commercial opportunities associated with them, have been slowly getting picked off across this half a century. Whereas with computer vision, we've been, it's been so hard for us to make any headway as a, as a research community, that the, op, the opportunities have not been picked up. So we think that, that industry is, is um, there's a tremendous unmet need in industry for computer vision, and we would like to become the computer vision company. It's a tremendously exciting field to be in from a technical perspective, as well as from, from the opportunities available commercially. So by the time we air this episode, which would be uh, long after uh, your conference scaled ml.org, uh, you would have launched officially. And uh, so what, what should the listeners know about Metroid if they go to metroid.com? So we'd like you to know that our mission is to be able to detect whatever you like in media. So we've built an entire studio for letting you create a detector that then that detector can be registered on streams of video, on large amounts of media, on, on say, TV channels or, or the stream from a, from a camera. And then whatever you made the detector to detect uh, will, will, uh, will be sent to you as notifications and, and through APIs. The, the basic premise is that wherever there is a, wherever there's a need to watch uh, a media channel, for whatever reason, maybe, it's, uh, maybe it's, it's someone who has to do a TV analytics, watching out for various uh, things that show up on TV. Maybe it's a security guard that needs to make sure that uh, no... No one walks into, a, into an area. Those places where there's someone that has to watch a media stream, we would like to automate and, and augment them. Um, and, the, and, and furthermore, we're going to just expand what is possible. Now that computers are, have eyes, and, and these eyes can see whatever you like with Matroid, the possibilities will be, will be endless effectively because now you can, you can have your computer detect whether... Um, whether the, the person at the door is, uh, is someone you know or not. You can have all kinds of things happening now that computers have opened their eyes. So there's that uh, kind of the public site where uh, consumers can try it out, have fun. But then uh, let's say I'm a company. How do I use Metroid? So once you've realized that Metroid works for your application, you can, you can, as a company, you can build your own detector. You can try it out, run it on whatever YouTube video, local video. And once you're convinced that the detector is working, you can have streams of media registered with us. You can also, uh, and for, to get notifications whenever the, whenever the thing that the detector is, is made to look for happens. 
and you can uh, you can partner with us to have our detectors run on your hardware as well. So we actually compile our detectors down into specific hardware that uh, that that not necessarily just GPUs, but all kinds of different hardware. We can we can we can uh, we can take it all the way to your hardware so that it, it runs most efficiently there, and then we provide you with essentially computer vision as a service. So that's um, and and for specialized needs for for very specialized detection needs like let's say I'm looking for a particular logo on a T-shirt, we have an entire suite of machine learning tools that lets folks optimize their compilers their detectors even more. Uh, for that specialized uh, application. So the public-facing part of Matroid is, is usable by anyone who has basic computer knowledge, maybe is about the same level of complexity as someone who uses Photoshop. And then there's a whole other facet of Matroid that is for machine learning experts to be able to detect the very, very long tail of things that uh, that are currently harder to detect. So our mission is to let you detect anything you like. That's why we've built this entire stack that makes it easy for some things and, and complex things are possible still. So our, our, in some ways, we, we make easy things easy and complex things possible. So uh, give us a sense of how much data is needed. So for example, I want to detect my company logo somewhere, right? And uh, I gave you a few examples. First of all, define uh, what's few? Or how many examples do I need to give you? And so ideally, you actually would give us none. We've built our own mini search engine to scour the web for examples of what you're looking for. So we actually tell, ask you, what do you want to detect? And you write it down. And then we go to town trying to find your examples. And then we help you curate those examples. And of course, if the examples that we provide aren't good enough, then you would have to provide your own. And there we expect that you would have to, you would be able to get away with 40, 50 examples of something. And then, and then you can go to town. When you're talking about faces, you could even have fewer examples, like just 10 examples of Ben Lorica's face is enough to make a Ben Lorica detector. Um, so it depends on the, the thing that you're detecting, how many examples you need. It depends on how complicated it is. And it depends on how good uh, and how uh, common that thing that you're detecting is. It, so, so it's a, it's there's not a one size fits all answer, but we've made it very easy for you to check yourself. It's a few clicks to just see whether your detector is working or not. So, are you going to take advantage of human expertise? In other words, uh, so as as I deploy uh, my matroid detector in production, I start noticing it's making mistakes in certain examples. Can I send that back to you? And then, so kind of the whole human in the loop. The whole human in the loop is available. So we've built our own video player specifically for that. So you can take a video, run a detector on it, and then inside the video and inside the video player, you can click around to give us feedback. And then once you give us feedback, that whole loop of let's rebuild the model using that feedback is, is put into place so that then you have now a better detector that takes into account your feedback, feedback from all over the place, not just the video player, but also straight up uh, images that you uploaded and you saw, well, this is wrong, this is right. All of that feedback uh, goes back into the process, and, and then you can. We've we've tightened the development loop for a computer vision uh, for computer vision from a few days to five minutes, or maybe even longer than a few days if you don't have a computer vision scientist on staff. So uh, the whole process of gather data, train, try it out can take five to ten minutes with Matroid, whereas it would take. Uh, upwards of uh, uh, maybe even a week if you don't have uh, if you don't have the expertise in house and you have to learn it. So to close, uh, Reza is organizing a conference that takes place once a year. He just launched a company that now has a product that uh, you all can try and companies can try. 
and he also is writing a book for me and you know, writing. <laughs> so I don't know where he finds the time to do all of these things. But uh, so when do you think this book is coming out and what's the title? Uh, the title, I believe, is Deep Learning with TensorFlow. And what I you... believe it's coming out later this year. I'm not exactly sure of the month. Um, so I'm, I'm writing this with, uh, with a co-author. Co, co and actually, the co-author is doing most of the work. So he deserves most of the work. Bart um, is, is going to be the first author on the, on the book. And I believe we're coming out sometime, uh, I don't want to say the exact month, in the second yeah, half yeah. of the year. Cool. In the second half of the year. And, um, and that will be catering towards folks who use TensorFlow for the sake of uh, all kinds of things. Bart is particularly interested in computational chemistries, and he has an open source framework for computational chemistry. So a lot of the examples in the book will be geared towards chemists, which I think is quite exciting because um, I know a lot about deep learning, but I don't know much about chemistry. And so it's a privilege to be able to work with him on it. Great. So uh, thank you, Ressa, for your time. Thanks. Thanks, Ben. You can follow Ressa Sade on Twitter at Ressa underscore Sade. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. And if you have a chance, please rate us on iTunes. Mm-hmm.